you would look with me in Philippians chapter 2, we have seen that, that great hymn, that great Christ song, if you will, in verses 5 to 11, where Paul speaks about the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. And he says, in light of that, in response to that, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to note will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father of mercy, we know that every, every glorious doctrine in Scripture has tension. It's because it comes from the mind of an infinite being. And Lord, there is a glorious tension here, an antinomy, as has been described, between human responsibility and divine sovereignty that grounds it all. Give us grace, Lord, to behold that in all of its beauty and glory today as we indeed work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On April the 3rd, the last episode of Fixer Upper aired on HDTV, the channel that's always on our home. You might watch ESPN, we watch HGTV. Not really. In every episode, Chip and Joanna Gaines, they take this broken down, dilapidated house and they seek to make it beautiful. Their job is to find a house uh, for a local buyer and make it livable for that buyer. Chip and his crew do the construction and then Joanna does the interior decorating. And then every episode ends with this big reveal where the buyer is given a tour of the remodeled house. Um, In fact, we are invited as the viewers to experience that with the buyer. You're given this side-by-side comparison between the before and the after of the remodeling. In fact, this is the mission of the gains. They take these fixer-uppers and they make them glorious and beautiful. You know, these broken down houses in these episodes, I think, are a picture of where the fall has left us all. Every room of our lives, if you will, has been dirtied. It's been damaged by sin. Not one part of our lives shows or shines any of the glory that we had pre-fall before Adam sinned. And think about this. We don't, in our natural state, think any godly thoughts. We have no godly ambitions. We do not love the things God loves. We do not hate the things God hates. That's our natural self. We're not devoted to the purposes that God is devoted to. We're at best indifferent to God. We are in need of restoration. 
And God sent his son to do just that. He came on a restoration project. And we see the promises of this restoration throughout the Old Testament. But the first act of this restoration was the resurrection itself. Because in the resurrection, God raises man in Jesus Christ. And the glorious swallows up the inglorious. The incorruptible is, is, swallows up the corruptible in this one person, Jesus Christ. And that after he has satisfied God's wrath on sin. And upon his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he sends his spirit to apply that all-sufficient work to our hearts, to our persons, to our minds, our affections, and our wills. And we are regenerated. We are converted. And at that moment of conversion, the Spirit begins the process, the very Spirit of Christ, mind you, of remodeling us, of remaking us, of restoring us into the image of God, the image of Christ, if you will. And what the Spirit does in this process is he illumines us. This is the key way he does it. He illumines us to the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he says, We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another. What Paul is saying is that we become like what we behold. We desire and begin to pursue those things that we behold. That's the purpose of verses 5 to 11. The Apostle Paul is concerned about divisiveness. He's, he's concerned about pride. He's, he's concerned about selfish ambition and conceit in the body at Philippi. He's concerned about it at Fisherville as well. Because this is a timeless document. But instead of just slapping our wrists... Over our division, he gives us a vision of the glory of God in Christ. He shows us that Christ made himself of no reputation, took the form of a servant, came in the likeness of man, and as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What is Paul doing there? He's giving us glory. And as we behold that glory, as we fix our eyes on that glory, it transforms us from the inside out. This isn't just behavior modification. He's going after our hearts. Paul knows that orthodoxy. Now, what is orthodoxy? It is straight beliefs. It is right beliefs, right doctrine. Orthodoxy, when rightly beheld and rightly seen, will produce orthocardia, right hearts, and orthopraxy, right actions, um, right devotions, if you will. But Paul also knows we still need direction towards that end, and hence our present text, verses 12 and 13. Now, what we see in this passage is what J.L. Packer calls an antinomy. And in antinomy, you have 
a, an apparent contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. It's just a tension. The Bible never contradicts itself. And what we see in this passage is one of the classic passages that demonstrates that God is absolutely and exhaustively sovereign, and yet we're responsible. And there is no understanding of that mystery. There is a mystery in that, but it's real. In fact, we're going to see in verse 13, as Paul speaks about this salvation that Christ himself has accomplished through his humiliation and his exaltation, it's all of grace. It is all the work of God. And yet, in verse 12, he says, our salvation also involves our work by this grace. That brings us to verse 12. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, my beloved. Now, when he says my beloved, that makes it clear he is writing to believers. Paul is not a universalist. He does not believe that every person is going to go to heaven when they die. He is speaking to those who are in union with the beloved one, Jesus Christ. Our identity is in Christ. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Since the time on that second journey, that second missionary journey, and he saw these conversions and this church formed there in Philippi, he says, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul has just taken us to one of the mountain peaks of Scripture. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is one of the the real mountain peaks of Scripture where we see glorious and beautiful truths and and things. And it's tempting if you're one of those who is really theologically and doctrinally inclined to want to stay there, to, to ponder these glorious truths and to dot your I's theologically and to cross your T's doctrinally. That's very important. We want to linger there. We're like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, who looked at Jesus and said, It is good that we're here. Let us build three tents. Many are content to just stay there and ponder these theological truths, but it has no uh, impact on their lives. But that is not sufficient. That is not sufficient. Scripture will not let us stay On the mountain. We have to go back down the mountain, don't we? Into the nitty gritty of regular life. Of the local church. uh, Our marriages. Our parenting. Our interactions with our neighbors and the co-workers and bosses. And the world. And it's in going down the mountain that we can really gauge. If what we have beheld on the mountain has had a transforming effect on us. There are some people who who could make a hundred and then the bonus on every theology test that you give them. But they're mean. They're mean-spirited. They're unmerciful. They're unloving. You sometimes see them on the, the blogosphere. And oftentimes you'll see these blogs and, and you go, wow, I agree with their theology... But their pathos 
is mean-spirited. Where's the fruit of the Spirit? Where's the love? Where's the joy? Where's the peace? Where's the patience? Where's the kindness? Where's the goodness? Where's the self-control? Paul will not have any of that, and hence this passage. Notice here in verse 12, therefore. Now, if you remember, last week there was a therefore. Uh, Last week we saw that Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And what does God do? Verse 12 says, or verse 11, 9, verse 9 rather, therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. In other words, the father assessed the son's obedience and he responded appropriately to the son's obedience by exalting him to his right hand, bestowing on him the name which is above every name. That's the therefore that's applied to the father. And now Paul is going to apply a therefore to us. In light of Christ's obedience, therefore, my beloved, work out your salvation. Obey, not just when I'm with you, but when I am absent from you. So just as the Father has exalted Christ to the right hand and bestowed on him the name, we are to respond to Christ's obedience by exalting him as well in our hearts. There's a definite link between these therefores. In other words... We learn from the Bible not only what is ultimately true, we also learn from the Bible how to respond to these ultimate truths. Now, there are some people, I've heard it, I've heard it here, that say, I'm not into doctrine, I'm not into theology. Well, Paul was. In fact, he would never give you a command without giving you a doctrine that was the ground of that command. And so there are some people who who dismiss doctrine and theology. Paul just gave you glorious theology in verses 5 to 11. But on the flip side, there are those who believe that doctrine and theology were given just so that we can win the wars on the blogosphere. No, that's not what Paul is doing here. In fact, we get a hint at our response to this doctrine based on... The two main emphases that he gives us in verses 5 to 11. The first emphasis is this. Jesus obeyed. He became obedient to the point of death. Now, who is he obeying? He's obeying the Father. Who's he obeying for? Well, ultimately for the Father's glory. But so that we can have a righteous status and standing before the Father. His obedience is credited, is imputed to those who trust in him. And so we see the obedience of Christ, but we also see here that he receives from the Father the title of Lord. Now indeed, he was, as the Son of God, the eternal Lord, but now he's bestowed on him a new name. He is now Lord as the victorious God-man. And as with any doctrine, both aspects of this twofold emphasis is now applied to us. God, uh, Paul always applies his doctrine. In other words, just as Jesus obeyed, you are to obey. 
And just as Jesus has bestowed on him the name Lord, we are to live under his lordship. We are to allow the reality of his lordship, which involves his authority, his sovereignty, and his covenantal presence to color every aspect of our lives. The way we think, the way we speak, the way we feel, the things we are devoted to. And he says, not only that, you do it when I am absent. Now, obviously, the Apostle Paul is not walking with us today, but this is a very important principle. And the principle is this, that we get a glimpse of our gospel integrity not when we are present with other believers on a Sunday morning. We learn about the degree of our gospel integrity when we're interacting with our spouses behind closed doors. We get a glimpse of our gospel integrity when we are at school with our friends and they are tempting us to do things that are not in keeping with the glory of God and the honor of God. We get a glimpse of our gospel integrity when we're in our bedrooms and the lights are off and we have our computer turned on before us. In other words, our gospel integrity is defined by what we are when no one is watching. If there is consistent blamelessness, that's one mark that the life of Christ is being produced in your life. Indeed, the word obey here that Paul calls us to is the same word that was used of Jesus in verse 8. And this obedience, notice, entails working out your salvation. Isn't that remarkable? Because we in our circles hear that salvation is all of grace. And here Paul is saying, work out your salvation. Now, in Scripture, salvation is represented by three tenses. Salvation is... Represented by three tenses. As a young boy growing up in Southern Baptist life, I only heard about one of these tenses. That is, have you been saved? Yes, I was saved at a RA event. Or I was saved watching Billy Graham. I was saved at a revival. We tend to think of just past tense salvation. But salvation in the scripture has three tenses. We have been saved. That is our justification. One day we will be ultimately saved. That is our glorification. And in the present, we are being progressively saved. That is our progressive sanctification. It's important to keep these three tenses in mind. So what is justification? It is the act whereby we are forgiven of our sins and our status is changed. Our status is changed from condemned sinner to righteous saint. That's what justification is. It's an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons us. He forgives us of all of our sins. And he accepts us as righteous in his sight. But only because of the righteousness of Christ. Which is imputed to us, credited to us, and received by faith alone. That is justification. That is a past event. 
In justification, our righteousness is perfect, but it's not inherent. It's a legal righteousness. Our legal status has been changed. Now, in sanctification, it's a progressive reality. It's a work of God's free grace. Whereas the justification is an act of God's free grace, sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of Christ, after the image of God. And we are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto God. That's sanctification. Now, in justification, the righteousness is perfect, but it's not inherent. In sanctification, the righteousness is imperfect, but it's inherent. God is working that righteousness in us. So what is glorification? In glorification, which happens at the moment of death and ultimately at the resurrection, our righteousness becomes not only perfect, but inherent. Sin will no longer be present in us. So what is Paul referring to here? Work out your salvation. Well, the ground of our salvation is our justification. But here he's referring to progressive sanctification. Where we're made more and more like Christ. In fact, if that is not a reality in your life, it doesn't matter what you have professed or confessed. It may be that you were never justified. It may be that you were never born again. Because one of the marks of the new birth, one of the marks of justification, is that at that moment, the believer begins to take on the resemblance of his or her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what Paul says here. Paul says sanctification involves work on our part. Isn't that remarkable? Sanctification involves work on our part. Indeed, work is a command. It's an imperative. Now, it does not mean that we work for grace. All the, the grace that, all the grace that we need, we have in Christ, our union in Christ. We don't work for grace. We work from grace. We work by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. It is by grace you have been saved. That's our justification. Through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Even our faith is a grace gift. And not from yourselves so that no one can boast. And then he says, for we are God's workmanship. Literally, his literary masterpiece, his poema. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the work he's referring to here. Now, this, this work is, again, is not the root. It's the fruit. But it's a necessary fruit. Now, what will motivate a lifelong pursuit like this that requires you to die to self when those around you aren't? 
to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness when those around you aren't. They're eating and drinking and being merry. And God is calling us to this life loan, moment by moment, denial of self, a life of obedience for the purposes of our sanctification. Well, the most fundamental motive is the gospel itself. That's why Paul gave you the gospel in verses 5 to 11. And what the gospel does is it frees me from having to perform. It's like the teacher I heard who gave a student an A on the first day of class. This is a real story. Steve Brown tells it. It was his daughter. Steve Brown, the Presbyterian pastor. He said his daughter was given an A on the first day of class. She wanted to drop the class. She didn't feel like she could pass the class. And the the teacher said, don't worry. I don't want her to worry about performing. I want her to learn. And so the teacher gave the student an A. And freed from the tyranny of having to perform, she finished first in the class. And so the most fundamental motivation for obedience is the gospel. I've been freed from having to perform. My status has been secured. I've been adopted forever in God's family. My sins are forgiven. I'm a son of God. I've been redeemed. I've been reconciled at an infinite cost. That will transform you. Paul mentions another motivation here. Fear and trembling. Now, what is he referring to there? He's certainly not referring to the fact that you might mess up and then God slaps you over the head. That's the way other religions present their God, who is no God at all. I have a friend that I work out with often. His, his name is Jason Paget. He played center for the Louisville Cardinals. And he went on to play five years in the NFL. And I asked him, what's the difference in pressure between college football and the NFL? And he says, well, he said, when I was in college, I didn't have the fear that if I did not perform, they were going to ruin my, my future. That they were going to end my career. But in the NFL, you're one mistake away from losing your livelihood. You play out of that fear. Well, that works in football. That's not the fear Paul is referring to here. The fear he's referring to here is a reverential awe. You are stunned at the glory of God. You are in awe Of this God. In false religion. You obey. Because God is useful. Or he's volatile. You never know when he may erupt. That's false religion. In Christianity. You obey. Because God is beautiful. And he is exalted in his son. And you are in awe. Of him. Now, in our individualized culture, it's easy to think of only an individual application of this passage. But the emphasis here is in the corporate setting. He's writing to a church. And what is he dealing with? Division in the church. 
He's dealing with pride. He's dealing with division. He's dealing with selfish ambition. He's dealing with conceit in the church. That's the context. In fact, the word your here, work out your salvation, is plural. Indeed, we need each other to be sanctified. Sanctification, salvation, perseverance is a corporate endeavor. Ephesians chapter 4, from him the whole body is joined together and grows itself up in love as each part does its work. I can't grow without people to love. I can't grow without people outside my family unit to love. Because sanctification, in another way of saying that, I, it's growing in Christ-like love. I can't grow without, that, without you. I can't grow without God's people being used of God to expose my sin. It's good when we have struggle in the church. It's not comfortable. I don't like it. But it's good. Because the struggle exposes our sins. And if my sin isn't exposed, I'm not going to grieve over it. And if I don't grieve over my sin, I'm not going to repent over it. And so it's good that we have struggles in the church. I can't grow without you being used to God to expose my sin. I can't grow without your loving correction of me. I can't grow without you bringing wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to the table that I don't currently have. I can't grow without your encouragement so that I might persevere in the faith. Yet in all this, with all the human responsibility we can muster, our salvation is still all of grace. And that brings us to the second part of this passage, verse 13. Our salvation, indeed, God's work of grace. Our work by grace, God's work of grace. There's that tension. Notice with me in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Note, there is a worker in verse 12, and there's a worker in verse 13. Don't lose the tension. All glorious doctrine has tension. Work here is in the present tense, which signals that God is always active in the believer's life. God takes no sabbaticals. He doesn't take weekends. He doesn't take naps. God is always active. If you are in Christ, he is presently at work in your life for your salvation, for your sanctification. He never ceases from his sanctifying work. Now, that is an alarming thought. If I decide I'm going to go rogue. If I decide I am, this is one area of my life I'm going to sequester off from God. Won't work. Never has worked. You can't outrun God. You can't outbox God. He is always at work 
bringing sanctification in the life of a believer. If you can disobey God and there be no discipline, you're in a dangerous place. God is always at work producing holiness in us, which means every circumstance I face is a grace circumstance. It may be painful, but I'm not there by accident or bad luck. God is doing his work of salvation. God is doing his work in me, in that circumstance. Every relationship. Are there people you'd prefer not to hang out with or be around? They're God's strategy. Your spouse, God's strategy. Your location, God's strategy. Circumstances, relationships, locations, all of it is being used by God to bring sanctification in the life of the believer. Notice here, he says, he works in you. Gordon Fee says this verb work does not so much mean that God is doing it for them, but that God supplies the necessary empowering. In every act, every human act, there are two things to consider. First of all, our wills, and then secondly, our deeds. Now, our wills are the ambassadors of our hearts. Whatever our wills are devoted to, they're just representing our hearts, our affections. Okay? And so we have our, our hearts, our wills, and then we have our deeds. And one or the other is always the problem. Even if we were to will something righteously, we couldn't do it. And even if we were to do something, we wouldn't will it. Sin has corrupted both the power to choose righteously and the power to accomplish righteousness. We're in a bad way. But God is effectually... And perpetually at work in the believer. Isn't that hopeful? Which means when I get impatient with you as a believer, a fellow believer, I'm really getting impatient with God and his work in your life. And you get impatient with me, you're being impatient with God. God is ever at work both to will in us and to work. Augustine. He wrote, our deeds are our own. Because of the free will producing them. And they are also God's. Because of his grace causing our free will to produce them. And it's the reality that both the the willing and the doing lie beyond our natural resources. And reside in God's working in us. That produces this sense of desperation and dependence and fear and trembling. Now let me close this with a specific application. So how do we work out our salvation? Let's try to get into the knit and gritty. We could do an entire series on this. And I'm going to do it in five minutes. Since the time of the Reformation... And in particular, a man named Melanchthon. You may have heard about Melanchthon, a contemporary of Luther. But in his commentary on Romans, 
Melanchthon lays out two aspects of progressive sanctification that we're responsible for as God works in us to do and to will. One is a negative and one is a positive. Both are crucial and they travel together. The first, and these are fancy terms, but you get the concept if you just hear mortification. Mortification. It's an old word that means to kill. To kill. We have responsibility to kill. What are we called to kill? Kill our sin, lest sin be killing us, as John Owen wrote. Colossians 3, 5, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, God's wrath has come upon the sons of disobedience. Mortification. So we are called to kill at the root the sin that swells up in our hearts. It's to die to sin. Remember this. Jesus died for our sins and now we die to our sins. Jesus died for our sins and now we die to our sins. And when I die to my sins, I am acknowledging that Jesus has died for my sins. Why would I enjoy the very thing he put him on a cross? That's mortification. The second part, this is the term we use less often, vivification. This is where God the Spirit strengthens us and empowers us to live righteously, godly. Paul has both ideas of mine and Galatians. For through the law, I die to the law that I might live to God. Vivification. For I have been crucified with Christ. And it is yet no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That's mortification. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. Mortification. Vivification occurs simultaneously and continuously throughout your life. You cannot take a vacation from either one. If you want to grow, if you want to be sanctified, if you want to walk in victory. Keep in mind, God does his work in us at the level of our desires. Christianity is not behavior modification. Don't do this. Don't do that. Christianity is God changing us from the inside out. So he works at the level of our desires. And we at all times operate out of the level of our desires. Let me give you a thought that maybe you haven't considered before. At any moment, you always do that which you most desire to do. Always. You say, well, I I would prefer to be at the beach this morning. No, you wouldn't. Or you'd be there. There was something you desired more than being at the beach. I desired to sleep in this morning. No, you didn't. Or you would have slept in. There was something you desired more than sleeping in. We always do that which we most desire. In a very real sense, what makes people what they are is the order of their loves. 
Let me repeat that. What makes people what they are is the order of their loves. What makes you are what you are is what you love most and what you love least. Because what you love drives your life. It drives your bank account. It drives how you spend your time and who you spend your time with. It's the order of our loves. And that's why mortification and vivification are so crucial. Because we weaken sin at the motivational level by meditating on God's holiness. Meditating on Christ's love for us and all those other glorious doctrines, and then seeing our specific sins in light of those glorious and beautiful truths. You know what it does? It makes sin less and less attractive to us. Where we begin to hate it. And it makes God and His Son more and more attractive to us. And we begin to grow in our love. Again, our lives are lived out at the level of our desires. Of our loves. It's to identify the habitual sin patterns in your life. Do you have a habitual sin pattern in your life? Absolutely you do. We all do. As we live in the not yet. So you identify those habitual sin patterns. The way you sinfully interact with your, your, your spouses. Your, your, your children. Your brothers and sisters at the church. Your co-workers. And so you identify these habitual sin patterns and then you load them with spiritually alive thoughts about God and His Son and His gospel and His grace. And those spiritually alive thoughts begin to poison your sin patterns. And your heart is being transformed from the inside out. And this requires the predictable but necessary ordinary means of grace. You cannot do it without the ordinary means of grace that God has entrusted to us. Starts at the corporate level. You need preaching, not because I'm the preacher. You need the preaching of the word or you will not be sanctified. You need corporate worship or you will not be sanctified. You need to partake of the table as a believer or you will not be sanctified. Privately, you need to immerse yourself in the word of God. So that you begin to stare at glory until you see it. And pray. Pray the scriptures. One of my favorite prayers, and we'll close here. And we don't have time to really go into detail here. George Whitfield, whose life was characterized by mortification and vivification. Here's what he prayed God, give me a deep humility. A well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye. That's beautiful. Let me just briefly break that down in 30 seconds. Deep humility. We tend to be too exalted. We get easily offended. We look down our noses at others. We reflect on the gospel of Christ who humbled himself to the point of a cross We cannot humble ourselves too much after seeing him, after beholding him. How about this well-guided zeal? We're all zealous for something. We're hardwired for zeal. You are zealous for something that's ultimate in your life. Follow your money, follow your time, and that will take you to the object of your zeal. Behold the Christ. Who was so zealous for us and our salvation 
that he left the glory of heaven and came. Remember what he prayed the night before the cross? He said, Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have accomplished the, the work you have given me to do. That's beautiful. And I want to be zealous after the things Jesus is zealous for. How about burning love? Are there people in this church that you just cannot stand? That you avoid? That you just have no love for? And yet you revel in God's grace to undeserving you. But you won't be a dispenser of that grace to that person. God, give us a burning love. And then a single eye. A single eye. What is he referring to there? Am I doing what I do for God's glory or Brian's glory? God the Son was willing to have his glory eclipsed for his Father's glory. And to restore the glory of his image bearers that was lost by our sin. Indeed, consider the Son of God and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God, be encouraged, is at work in you to do and to will according to his good pleasure. And that is the ground of our hope. Let's pray.